0: Well, please stand and turn with me to Judges 14. We're actually going to forego the New Testament reading. It's listed in the bulletin. And read just Judges 14. Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people? You must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines. But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. After some days he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion, and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought thirty companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, Let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is, within the seven days of the feast, and find it out, then I will give you thirty linen garments and thirty changes of clothes." But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you, shall give me, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you in your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, "You only hate me, you do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is." And he said to her, "Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother, and shall I tell you?" She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not have found out my riddle. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down thirty men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Amen. You may be seated. In general, I think uh, p- people like to root for the underdog. Um, we like to see the little guy come out on top, beat the team that everybody expects to win. And we like that um, as long as our team is not the one that was supposed to win. Um, it's tough when you go into the season number one in the preseason rankings, because then you don't have anywhere to go except down, right? Can only fall short of expectations. You can't exceed them. And um, so as much fun as it is to have the team that you like go from, from like worst to first, uh, it's equally bad for your ter- team to go from first to worst. I was raised to be a uh, North Carolina Tar Heels basketball fan. And last year they were in the NCAA finals, and they were number one in the preseason rankings this year. And then like Charlie Brown says and then the season started, right? We were undefeated, and then the season started. Um, and uh, now they might not even make the tournament. It's very disappointing. Everybody uh, likes watching the Yankees lose, except for Yankees fans, right? Because they're supposed to win, and then when they don't, it's disappointing. So we're we're used to the Bible giving us stories of unlikely heroes, right? Of um, kind of weak, marginalized, come-from-behind kinds of characters that you would never expect to be heroes of the faith. You never would have picked them for your team, but but the Lord does. The Lord chooses these people particularly to show that it is his almighty power working through them. Um, He he uses them to do mighty and amazing things. Um, We're not so much used to characters like Samson. Uh, Based on his birth story from last time, You could say that in the book of Judges, Samson uh, ranks number one in the preseason polls, (laughs) right? But today the season starts, and I'll just give you the points for tonight's outline that I think pretty much sum up the disappointment of this chapter. We're going to look at first the strong man's fall verses 1 to 9. Second, the strong man's weakness, verses 10 to 18. And then third, the stronger God. The strong man's fall, the strong man's weakness, and the stronger God. I use the term the strong man's fall very specifically because I'd like to point out in this opening section what I think are some striking parallels uh, between the early sins of Samson... Um, and the fall of Adam in Genesis 3. Let's look at that for a little bit here. First of all, in verses 1 through 3, notice how Samson is driven more by what he sees than by what he has heard. That is to say, he's driven um, by what is attractive to him, by, what, by, by his uh, desire for happiness, his desire for pleasure, more than he is driven by obedience to To the word of God. Um, Samson knows that he's an Israelite, and he knows that Israelites are not supposed to marry pagan foreigners. Samson knows, furthermore, that he's not just an Israelite, he is a Nazarite who has a special divinely given life mission to fight against the Philistines. And so, what could be further off plan than to go and marry one of them? but think about what happens in Genesis 3 when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was to be desired. Notice next, the end of verse 3, get her for me, Samson says, for she is right in my eyes. Now, that's very significant. She is right in my eyes. Uh, partly because it's repeated in verse 7, and she was right in Samson's eyes, it says again, but also because it is echoed in the very last verse of the entire book of Judges, famous verse where it says, in those days, chapter 21, verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the great problem with Israel during this period Uh, is that instead of obeying God's voice, they are simply doing whatever seems good to each person, whatever each person decides for himself or herself uh, is good. What Israel needs so desperately is a leader who will actually lead them in listening to the word of God and together submitting their wills, their idea of what is good and evil to the great Criterion, the great measuring stick of the commands of God as their ultimate authority. And that's what we hope. That's what we hope that maybe Samson will be the one to grow up to do. That's what he will grow up to be. But instead, what we find is that he's much more like Eve, isn't he? Did God really say that, Eve? Doesn't doesn't God know, Eve, that if you eat the fruit, then you'll be like God yourself? You'll... Be able to be the one to determine what is good or evil. Whatever is right in your eyes, Eve. See, Samson in pursuing this woman is not just making a bad marriage. Although well, he's doing that. And he's not just sinning against God, against his his Israelite covenant identity and his Nazarite holy calling identity. He's doing all those things. But more than that, he is committing really the sin, the arch sin, of trying to put his own evaluation of what is really good ahead of God's, what is really right. And that arch sin is really basic to all human idolatry, really all human sin in the final analysis. It's saying, no, I'm not going to listen to what God says. I'm going to do what is right in my eyes. I'm going to determine the knowledge of good and evil for myself. I'm going to be the authority. It's all down to me. Okay, so let's keep going. So now, then, uh, verse 5 says, Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now, don't ask me what Samson, as a Nazarite, was doing in a vineyard at all. Actually, do ask me. The answer is... This is not a good sign. It's a a symbol in the narrative that there is a threat here to his Nazarite responsibilities. Um, And let's look then at what happens next. It says, And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. And then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Now, there are kind of two things going on simultaneously in the slaying of this lion. with Samson's bare hands. Uh, first of all, this is revealing to us the, the primary way in which the Holy Spirit's power is going to be manifested, particularly in Samson throughout his life, um, and that is through his prodigious physical strength. Okay, so that's Samson's trademark. It's what he's famous for. And we, we picture him uh, as this, this huge muscular giant of a man, like a comic book superhero. Um, uh, although, in a sense, I'm not sure that's wrong. I don't know that's not wasn't what Samson looked like. But it can be misleading to have that mental picture in our minds Because Judges doesn't tell us that physical strength is is, um, tied to some permanent aspect of Samson's physique. It's it's instead something that he exercises on particular occasions by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And significantly, when the Lord leaves Samson later, um, when the Lord leaves Samson without that spiritual power, um, uh, uh, his strength departs as well. So it's not just that he's a really strong guy and that God has made him that way. It's the power of the Holy Spirit is what rushes upon him to do these particular um, prodigious acts of strength. So if you want to know how did Samson do it? How did he manage to kill this mighty lion with his bare hands? The answer is found in that statement that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. It's very important. Samson was divinely protected. He was divinely empowered for this act of miraculous uh, supernatural physical strength. But that very same act also introduces a problem. It's not an unsolvable problem. Uh, it's a complication, though, that Samson makes much worse by his reaction to it. Remember that Samson is a Nazarite, right? Now, um, he's not supposed to come in contact with dead bodies of people, particularly Numbers 6 says in the whole law um, laid out prescribing the rules for Nazarites. Um, the Nazarite law does not mention specifically contact with dead animals, but there are more general laws, Leviticus 5, Leviticus 11, which, said that, which say that the carcasses of unclean animals make any Israelite unclean. And that specifically includes animals that walk on their paws on all fours. So it will be big cats, include big cats like lions, right? walking on their paws on all fours. It's an unclean animal. Its carcass is going to be unclean for any Israelite. Contact with that carcass is going to make any Israelite unclean. And so if that was to be a concern for all Israelites, it would surely be a particularly heightened concern for a Nazarite, at least a conscientious Nazarite, who cared about his Nazarite status. And if he did become unclean in that way, he would need to give careful attention to the laws for being ceremonially cleansed. Again, it's not as though it was wrong for Samson to come in contact with this animal, but it did place him under certain obligations that had to do with him being a Nazarite. But see, Samson doesn't seem to give any thought to that sort of thing at all. And in fact, he makes it much worse because when he comes back later and he finds uh, the the, the beehive with honey in it and the carcass of the lion, um, he approaches that test. Uh, And I I think... uh, the commentators who who see that as a test, you you wouldn't normally expect to find honey in the carcass of a lion, right? That's an unusual thing to have happen. And I believe that we're to see that as a test, as a probation for Samson. What is he going to do? And again, it's very similar. There's some parallels here with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Samson, of course, approaches that temptation of the honey in the carcass of the lion the same way The same way that he approaches the temptation of the Philistine woman he wants to marry. He goes by what he sees, what he desires, what is right in his eyes, rather than going by the word of God. Once again, it's so much like Eve in the garden. He turns aside to see it. He takes the honey. He eats it. And then what does he do? Again, like Eve, he gives it to someone else. For them to eat it too it to his parents. Now, it's a little bit different than the case of Adam and Eve. His parents eat out of ignorance. They don't know um, where this honey came from. But still, if you think about it, the uncleanness of that carcass would have spread to them as well, even without their knowledge. And so, there's still, that parallel still intact there. This is um, uh, dishonoring to his parents for Samson to give him, them this unclean honey and not tell them where it came from. You've heard the phrase that misery loves company. It's very important for us to understand that sin loves company. Sin loves company. One of the things um, that should warn us against giving in to temptation in our lives is that it rarely impacts just ourselves. In fact, you could I think you could go as far as to say it never impacts just you. Your sin ends up infecting your relationships, Sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. But this is what it does. It infects our relationships. It brings temptation, or at the very least, unintended consequences for the worse into the lives of the people that we love. Well, let's go on now. After the strong man's fall, we come in verses 10 to 18 to a preview of the strong man's weakness. The strong man's weakness. I say it's a preview because this episode, in, in some sense, is, is really setting up for a later episode. It's setting up for a much more serious and costly error by Samson in chapter 16. Um, in this uh, episode, Samson's weakness leads to him losing... A bet um, In chapter 16, it leads to him losing his hair and his strength and being captured by the Philistines. But we want to understand what this weakness is. This man who who shows such prodigious physical strength and courage also uh, against Philistine um, enemy soldiers. The contrast is so striking when you see how utterly weak and cowardly he is when he encounters the um, sort of emotional manipulation of the Philistine women that he finds himself attracted to. So his run-in with the lion and then later the honey in its carcass gives him this idea for a surefire, can't-lose bet to make with the Philistine men who are joining in these week-long wedding festivities. There's no way they're going to guess this one. Out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. It's like the story of Rumpelstiltskin, where um, he he says he won't take the queen's baby um, if if she can guess his name. And in that case, the only person who can beat Rumpelstiltskin is Rumpelstiltskin, right? Because nobody's going to guess that name unless he gives away. And of course, he eventually gives away the answer. The queen's baby is saved. Well, here, the only person who can beat Samson is Samson. Nobody is going to guess this riddle because it's such an unusual situation. A one-of-a-kind experience that he's had and nobody else knows about it. All he has to do is keep the answer to himself for one week and he wins those 30 changes of garments. But of course it's not that simple, right? It's not that simple because of a choice that Samson has already made that makes it much more complicated than that. See, what Samson begins to experience now is the the consequences of being unequally yoked, to use Paul's phrase, with a non-Israelite wife. For Samson, it seemed so straightforward. I like her, and I'm going to marry her. That's just what I'm going to do, because that's what I want to do. And what could go wrong? But what Samson underestimates, he underestimates how deeply that is going to entangle in the really irreconcilable conflict between the Israelites and the Philistines. The Israelites suffering under the Philistine oppression. These Philistine men are going to stop at nothing to keep from losing to Samson, this Israelite who's supposed to be under their domination. And they are even willing to threaten his wife, who is also a Philistine, with death for her and for her family if she doesn't make Samson give them the answer. I think that the historian would have a great degree of sympathy at this point with the uh, woman here, Philistine though she is, who is caught in the crossfire of this situation on uh, as a consequence of Samson's uh, sinful actions. This is um, not the last time either in Judges that the sinful actions of Israelite men are going to put vulnerable women in very tragic situations. In fact, that is going to be a running theme, one of the major running themes from here to the end of the book. Samson should never have been involved with this woman in the first place. He should have been fighting for Israel against the Philistines. Instead, here he's partying and gambling with them, fraternizing with the enemy, and marrying one of their women. And yet it's this woman that he... Says he loves, and her family that end up actually getting killed. She actually does end up being murdered um, by the middle of chapter 15. The immediate cause for Samson losing this bet, though, um, gives us an important insight into his flawed character in that other sense I was talking about earlier. And that is Samson's inability to resist uh, the attraction and manipulation of Philistine women. See, Samson has committed himself to this relationship instead of committing himself to God. And because he has made that choice, because he has taken that decisive fork in the road and said, I'm going to say no to the voice of God, and I'm going to do what's right in my eyes instead, what that means is he is now... In that relationship, blinded to the folly that he is falling further and further into. As he goes. This is exactly what we ought to expect. See, Samson has rejected the guardrails of wisdom that come from the fear of the Lord. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Samson has shown that he does not fear God, he doesn't care what God thinks, he is going to go his own way, he's going to do what's right in his eyes. And so the guardrails are gone for Samson. The guardrails of wisdom that would have kept him from this marriage in the first place aren't there anymore. And so now that he's in it, those, those guardrails aren't there to keep him from careening further down the ravine of his foolishness. He's so tunnel-visioned. So tunnel-visioned in his desire just to have happiness, just to have a pleasant, easy, normal life with this woman that he wanted to marry And just for her to stop bugging him and for everything just to have peace and quiet in his home, can't so many of us relate to that. We just want to be happy. We just want to have some peace and quiet. And because of that overwhelming desire, that idolatry of his own personal peace of mind and happiness, he can't see the consequences that to us as the readers are, are... like an oncoming train. Oh, Samson, you've got to get out of the way. Look at what's going to happen. But isn't that what all sin is really like? We stop our ears to God's law. Like those monkeys We want to see no law of God, We want to hear no law of God, speak no law of God. Because we've blinded and deafened ourselves to the Lord's wisdom, because of that, all we have left to guide us at that point is our sinful desire then. And that sinful desire, which is folly itself, just leads us deeper and deeper in destructive downward spiral, powerless to get out of it in our own strength because we have already rejected the one thing that would lead us out, the one source of wisdom and truth that would pull us in the opposite direction. Before we go on, I just want to impress on us here one specific application that I think this story illustrates better than um, almost any other in the Bible, and that's how urgent it is that Christians who are looking to marry, looking for a spouse, that Christians marry people who are also devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's so important, and it's just so clear in the example of Samson from the Scriptures. Um, and it's so easy to see here how easy it is to convince yourself, oh, how, how bad could it really be? I like this person, they like me, I'm attracted to them, what could go wrong? And no, I'm not saying that a Christian's life will end up just like Samson's if they marry a non-Christian. He's a pretty unique case, obviously. But you can see illustrated here the entanglement, entanglement, the um, the unintended consequences, the divided loyalties, the, the the impossible situations, and then ultimately the tragedy and heartbreak that comes from ignoring God's wisdom in this area particularly and just deciding to do what feels right. And, of course, we can expand that application beyond just the, that narrow question of who should a Christian marry, just to the broader way that so often we are tempted to follow our desires instead of following the Lord. Of, of all the stories of all the sinners in the Bible, this one teaches us most clearly of all, don't follow your heart no matter what Disney tells you to do. You follow the Word of God. You follow the Word of God because you can trust Him in a way you cannot trust your own heart. Because He is good. Because He loves you. He wants what is best for you. It's so hard so often to trust that. But Samson's example shows us what happens when we don't. Well, as we come to um, the last couple of verses of the chapter, Um, to understand them, we first need to look back at a verse I kind of passed over. I wonder if any of you noticed. Verse 4, very important verse for understanding this chapter. I was saving it for later. That's verse 4 where it says, His father and his mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines, he being the Lord. The Lord was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Now, this is not to say that, um, that the Lord was pleased with Samson's utter failure to care about being a Nazarite, or an Israelite for that matter. Uh, It also does not make God morally responsible for Samson's actions. Um, We should remember here, Joseph's brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. We should remember supremely the cross, the Lord Jesus, what Peter said at Pentecost, this is... Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The Lord is always sovereignly governing all human actions, even the worst of them, turning them to his perfect purposes for history. Uh, and and really, that's so much of the story of, of all of Judges, isn't it? See, time after time, we've been seeing the judges fall short of their holy calling to lead and protect and govern the people of God in righteous submission to the Lord. And it's one thing for us to say that God has accomplished his plan in spite of their failures. And that's not wrong. It's true as far as it goes. But we can say more than that. It's especially true in this chapter. We can say more, which is that God accomplishes his plans not only in spite of his people's failures, but even through those failures. And that is the most remarkable thing. That is where he really shows us his wisdom and power in a truly surpassing way. And that's exactly what he does here with Samson. See, it doesn't catch God by surprise that Samson, who was so strong when faced with a lion, would be so weak against his own wayward desires for pagan women. So what happens at the end of this chapter is not God's reaction to Samson's failure, switching, kind of switching to plan B, saying, well, I couldn't get him to just be a normal warrior against the Philistines, so I guess I'll have to kind of do it in this, get in through the back door. No, this has been God's plan all along for Samson. He is working through this strong man's fall, through this strong man's weakness, to reveal the higher and grander strength of Israel's stronger God. See, so left to himself, Samson would never have even begun to fulfill his calling to begin saving Israel from the Philistines. Left to himself, Samson, quite obviously, would have just settled down and married one of them and tried to live happily ever after. That's what Samson wanted. Had a couple kids. Bought a house, settled down. And that would have been it. That would have been the end of the story of Samson. Very boring story compared to what we get here. The Lord was not going to leave his people under the oppression of the Philistines. He was going to save them. And he was not going to let Samson's complacency, Samson's carelessness, stand in the way of that. In fact, he was going to use Samson to begin that salvation. Now, Samson is not going to be the one to finish that salvation, and we Definitely see in the story that Samson is in many ways an anti-hero. And we should also look forward in time and remember the Lord has much better heroes in store for whom Samson we can think of as kind of a foil in some ways. Um, Ralph Davis, for example, reminds us of some of the similarities between Samson and King David. Remember how David tells Saul before he fights Goliath about the time that he killed a lion when, when the lion was attacking his sheep. Um, for for all we know from that story, maybe with his bare hands as well, or at least in a very um, remarkable kind of way, all alone, facing that line. Um, And so David, of course, uh, then goes on to be a much greater hero than Samson for, for God's people, a man after God's own heart, as he's described, rather than a man who simply does what is right in his own eyes. Of course, on the other side of that coin, we can also see how David shares some of Samson's weakness, particularly his moral weakness in his relationships with women. And so in that sense, both of these men fall short. David less so than Samson, but both of them fall short and they both leave us longing for the greater hero of the people of God, the holy servant of the Lord, who never strayed, not once from his mission, who never deviated from his calling, Remember when the Lord Jesus was confronted with that temptation to live for his desires, for pleasure and satisfaction of sight and sense and taste. You're hungry, so just command those stones to become bread. What's the big deal? Just do it. Jesus chose to live instead. How? By every word. By every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. See, Jesus, because of that, Jesus was able not just to begin to save us, he did everything that it took, denying his own desires time after time after time throughout his life, and particularly in his passion, to the point of death on the cross. Until our salvation was finished, that's what he said, as he hung there dying. It is finished, not just begun. So where does this leave us tonight? Well, I hope that it leaves us each... Sobered, cautioned, earnestly warned against the temptation of living to gratify our desires. Living to to chase that feeling of, of, of happiness that's so elusive that addicts us sometimes figuratively, figuratively, sometimes literally, with the constant need, that, that need, that drive to give in to the things that we want here, that we want now, because we just want to feel good. We just want to be happy. Like Samson, that is the desire that so often motivates us. We just want to feel good. And so often that desire to feel good and be happy tempts us. To turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to the law of God. Surely God can't mean that. How can it be wrong when it feels so right? See, that's thinking like a Samson. And we can see here where that leads. We have to understand from the Word of God that it's not that God doesn't want us to be happy, it's that He does. It's that he does want us to be... The Lord wants for you to be holy and happy in Jesus. That is why he warns you so earnestly against living for the fleeting pleasures of sin. Because it won't actually satisfy you. When he tells you to live instead by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, he says that not to withhold happiness from you in a stingy way. Ah, You want to have it, but I'm just not going to let you. He says says that not to get you to give up happiness for some dreary life of boring drudgery instead. He says that to you because that is actually the path to solid joys and lasting treasure that won't disappoint you, that won't destroy you in the end, that won't devour you after the pleasure that they promise, the kinds of joy and treasure that will really satisfy you instead of leaving you always hungry for more, like Eustace's Turkish delight. You can see in the story of Samson what happens when we don't trust the Lord and take him at his word in that respect. I want to reassure you tonight Declare to you as people of God that you can trust the Lord. Truly satisfy you. That he is truly after your greatest good. Let's not be people who try to decide for ourselves then. To be our own authority. To make our own rules about what is right in our eyes. Instead, live by his word. Even if that means even if it means denying ourselves. Something that we really, really want. Something that seems really, really good to us. Because we're trusting Him. We are resting in Him. We're walking by faith and not by sight. Trusting Him that in the end, He will be true to His word. That's what it means to live as a Christian. That's what it means to walk by faith. So let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we're so thankful for you giving us this, the history of Samson. It's such a sad, tragic story. We're so thankful for the warnings that it gives to us, for the ways that it shows us the goodness and greatness of the Lord Jesus, and the ways that it shows us your almighty power and wisdom that you could work through a man like this to begin the salvation of your people from their enemies. Lord, we pray that you would please help us to walk by faith and not by sight, not to do what is right in our own eyes, but to live as we sang earlier, really trusting that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, living by every word that proceeds from your mouth and trusting that you have given us your commands um, for our good and that our best interests are in pursuing your greatest glory in our lives. Help us to trust and obey. Really believing that there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.